happy Father's Day. Um, did you get a call from your children? They're lavishing attention on you today. <laughs> oh, emoticons. Oh, well, that's just the next best thing, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Gordon reminded us this morning in the first service, just um, no matter how good or bad our fathers are or have been, no matter good or bad we have been as fathers, we have a Heavenly Father who is ab above everything good and wonderful, our Heavenly Father. It's a wonderful to be reminded of that as we've sung this morning. You know, I think um, there's something like, if memory serves me correct, 250, 260 times in the, in the New Testament, God is referred to as Father. The Father is, is, is addressed. And I think more than half of those are from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. The way of addressing God in prayer is not just a, a preference to say Father, but is the, the way in which Jesus addressed his own Father, addressed God, and it is for us to do the same. And I think that's a, that should tell us something. That should tell us something about the relationship that God desires with us, the closeness of the relationship, because I know Father, the name Father and fatherhood is sort of a dirty word to many people <coughs> in the world because they've been so burned by bad fatherhood but not our God he's everything that we're not and he desires the closest of closest relationships with us to come before him to say father daddy he is our heavenly father is that wonderful I, I think it's wonderful you're struggling this week you're one, wondering whether God is in your situation he's right there and to prove it he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for us to take the judgment that we deserved and to give us the salvation that we don't deserve. But he freely offers to us because Jesus paid the price. Amen? All right, we're into chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. We're really motoring along. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, so by all means turn to that. I've got some of the verses up here, but some of them you'll need to turn to um, just to make you work a little bit as we go. But it starts off with... 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, now about food sacrificed to idols. Food meaning meat, obviously, meat. Food sacrificed to idols. I've called this bad meat. Uh, anyone ever had any bad meat? Yeah, I think uh, Fred's, Fred's actually with us this morning. Um, he's out of hospital, but he's, uh, he's had a bit of food poisoning or something this last week. Well, this is how this message starts. It's about food poisoning <laughs> of a different kind. You know, when I, uh, I, I, lo I love a good steak, and uh, when I went to Kenya, the first couple of times I came back, about a week before I came back, I was dreaming about a succulent steak, tender succulent steak, because there's no such thing in Kenya. And it's, uh, it's so tough, it's just like boot leather. You know, the wonderful people, and, and, but the meat is not great. And, uh, but... That stopped this idea of coming home to really salivating over a good tender steak like that. <laughs> when I went, uh, uh, well, it must be a couple of years ago, and I went into a, uh, a, a, a little hut way out in the sticks and they gave me some food to meet and they're wonderful people, lovely, hospitable people. They give you everything. Uh, but the meat was bad and my... 
Western stomach couldn't really handle it. And so for the next 10 days, I was not real good and still had to preach. So I was preaching and then I was spending a lot of time in solitary confinement. <laughs> Even all the way home, until I got home, got some really good antibiotics. And Well, in this chapter that we're looking at today, the, there were some in the church at Corinth and they were getting sick. They ate meat, not a physical infection, but something that was spiritual. Uh, their spiritual life and vitality was at stake. Excuse the pun. <laughs> what was happening here? What was life like back in the first century in Corinth? Well, you couldn't get past really this. If you, if you had meat, more often than not, it would have been meat that was offered to, to idols. This is how William Barclay explains the situation. He says, the sacrifice to the gods was an integral part of ancient life. Um, it might be of two kinds. They were private and they were public. And in the private sacrifice, the animal was divided into three parts. The token part was burnt at the altar. The priests the, of the gods received their rightful portion and then the worshipper took the rest of the meat and he or she usually had a big banquet and invited people to come. It was a social occasion. Sometimes it was in the home of the host and other times it was in the temple of the god, the god, the particular god. Um, and so here's the problem that confronted Christians. Uh, could they partake in these feasts? Could they possibly take to their lips this meat that had been offered to a heathen god, a god, a little g god? Um, and if not, then you would almost cut yourself off from many, many social situations in that time uh, because invariably the meat that was uh, partaken of was offered to a heathen god. Now, in the public... Um, sacrifices. Uh, again, the requisite symbolic amount was burned. Uh, the priests received their share. The rest went to the magistrates and the officials. And the officials used what they could and then they sold the rest into the marketplace. And so if you were to go, if you said, I won't go to these social occasions, but I'll go and buy my meat, and you went to the market, then invariably again, you would probably, most likely, be buying meat that was already offered to some idol, some heathen god. And what complicated matters even further was that in that age, they believed that uh, evil spirits, demons, um, were lurking about trying to gain an entry into a man's body. And if they did get in, they'd, they'd do all sorts of injury and unhinge their mind. And they believed that the spirits settled on food. And so as a man ate, and that's how the evil spirits would get inside. And so to avoid that, they would dedicate the meat to some good God and uh, therefore it followed that a man could hardly eat meat at all and which was some way that was not connected with these practices, these pagan worship rituals. So how does that relate to us today? I mean, we don't have that in our country. We don't have that particular problem. So it's easy for us to just dismiss that and say, well, look, it's, 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 it's another culture. It's one of those things in scripture that you really don't, really can bypass because it's for that time. I don't think so because I think there's some wonderful principles here that we can uh, take to heart and learn and apply in our own lives. We don't have the situation where there's meat offered to idols made of, of, of wood or stone, but we do have idols. I won't come to that in a minute, but think about this for a minute. If I was to ask each of you to make out two lists this morning, 
On one list, you, you put those things which are always wrong for a Christian to do. Always wrong. And on the other list, you put up all those things which are always right for Christians to do. And then if I started listing them, went around and we started listing them, listing them, I wonder what would happen. What would happen? I reckon that we would probably not even get the first one finished or the, at least the second one up before someone would be putting their hand up and saying, oh, I don't know, I don't think it's always wrong for a Christian to do that. Or I don't think it's always right for a Christian to do that. You see, there are grey areas in life that we have to deal with as Christians, even in our day. It might not be the issue of meat offered to idols, but it, it, nevertheless there are many other issues that continue to really, for Christians to struggle with. Think about some of these. Some Christians struggle in relation, relation to whether they should go to the movies or not. I know Christians who would find it very difficult. They would think that that's a very worldly thing and that, that uh, it would tend to lead Christians astray, all those sorts of things. Many of us don't have a conscience about that, do we? Well, maybe we should have a conscience about some of the things that we watch. So, you know, there's, there's a particular area as well. Some may have a particular difficulty watching certain types of things that others may not have a conscience about. Maybe the scripture is not necessarily um, has a black and white answer. Whether is it, it is always right to drink alcohol or not. Uh, so that's an, that's, a, that's an issue for many Christians. And particularly those that have been converted from alcoholism. Uh, should they drink alcohol? Many Christians don't have a conscience about drinking a glass of wine with their meal. But is it always right for, that to, for the Christians to do that? What about playing cards? Some people won't play cards. They see it's all related to gambling and all those sorts of things. And for them, it's a difficult issue. Some ladies feel it's a sin to wear makeup. Some feel that dancing is a sin. Should we have a Christmas tree? Should we celebrate Christmas with Santa? Should Christians join clubs, certain clubs, um, associations, unions? I remember as a young Christian, that was a big no-no where I was. Couldn't associate with unions, become a member of the union. What about being part of a golf club? Is that okay? What about a fishing club, Noel? <laughs> no. What about being part of the Masonic Lodge? Mm. Pretty much on the always wrong column. <laughs> what about the things we wear? Right? What about the things? What about smoking? You see, quite honestly, a lot of those things I've just mentioned, the Bible's not explicit about those issues. Some Christians may not have a conscience about them, others may be very offended and may feel that their walk with the Lord is greatly affected if they were to do those things. So I think, think again about the converted alcoholic. One of the immediate things about someone who's converted, has been converted and has been an alcoholic is that they would have a determination never to touch the stuff again because every time they think about that, it, it brings up all of the memories and the associations which have been unhelpful and the chaos that has been wrought in their lives. Um, and so they've come to faith and they're wanting to put all of that behind them. And they come and their newfound Christian friends, there are some of them who uh, have a glass of wine or alcohol and uh, don't have a conscience about it, never been troubled by it, never been an alcoholic. 
and they invite him or her to their house and to entertain. That's a good thing, isn't it? Um, but he knows that it's wrong for him to take a drink because he knows that if he takes a sip, maybe even just smells it, then it will set off all sorts of things and he may not stop and he'll fall off the wagon and his faith will be compromised. Um, So you see the difficulty. You see how this ancient issue has implications for us today. The principles remain the same. The The culture has changed somewhat, okay? But there are many of those things... Um, that are difficult. See this Chris, Christian who's who who has just been converted from alcohol. Uh, he's been an alcoholic. He sees them, these mature Christians, and they're having a drink, no problem at all. And so he may be tempted to 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 be part of that, because he's seeing Christians who are more mature than him, even though his conscience is telling him otherwise. What does Paul have to say about this? Well, this is what this chapter is about, and really continues through to chapter ten. End of chapter 10, first verse of chapter 11, if you want to be technical. And I think there are three things I just want to talk about today. Um, three principles, if you like, uh, that Paul, I think, brings to bear in this passage that we can take away for us as well today. So let's just read a little bit, um, the first six verses to start with. <clears throat> now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And I think the first principle that Paul is bringing out here is in relation to Christian conduct, our conduct. How do we assess our conduct as Christians? And the first thing is that we cannot assess the conduct of Christians based on knowledge alone, based on knowledge. It's likely that Paul was using one of their expressions, one of their quotes, when he said, we all possess knowledge. He's probably referring to those who thought themselves rather in the spiritual elite area, the more mature Christians who would be claiming that um, we know certain things and therefore that's why we have no problem at all in taking meat that is offered to idols. Well, Paul takes that and says, well, what is the knowledge that you possess? And the first thing we see is in verses at the end of verses 4 and 5. And basically what Paul is, is, I guess, saying in relation to the knowledge that they would argue they have is that there are many idols, all of which represent gods who do not exist. So these would be people who would say, well, because of our superior knowledge, we know that these gods are made of wood and stone. They, they're, they're nothing. They're, they're, not, they're not real. There's nothing. They don't exist. These gods that they talk about don't exist. And so therefore, it's possible for a Christian to eat meat that has been offered to idols without any uneasiness whatsoever. They knew that idols were nothing. They knew that there's no um, God but one. And with these statements, Paul, I think, is almost saying that he agrees to to an extent. 
I think he's saying that on a factual level, uh, on a technical level, uh, that knowledge would, it would be right. That the, the reality of these gods is that they don't exist. The reality is that, that there's one God and therefore we can eat meat because it doesn't really do anything. Now we have to, I think we have to stop here and, and not misunderstand what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying here that there is no evil spiritual reality behind pagan worship of gods and idols. He's not saying that at all. Um, if you were to go back to the Old Testament, you would see that, I think it's the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, he links the worship of idols with worshipping demons. So he's, Paul's not saying, later on he, he says this in, uh, in chapter 10. He, uh, he says that the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons in chapter 10 verses 18 to 22 and so he's warning against participating too closely with these demonic rituals and so for this reason we can be sure we can be sure that Paul's not saying that idols are nothing in in a sense of a straightforward way but what he's saying is in comparison they are nothing at a physical level these gods are nothing at a physical level these gods that they talk about are nothing don't exist the things that are made with wood and stone are nothing they're inanimate objects but there is a spiritual reality. But even behind that, their worship of demons, the evil spiritual reality behind it is nothing in the sense of comparison with the one true God in heaven. When we compare the honour and the power and the glory of the one true God in contrast to the, the demons and the evil one himself, there's no comparison and there's no need, therefore, for Christians to have superstitious fear in relation to things like offering these meat, this meat that was offered to idols. As the Apostle John put in 1 John 4 verse 4, this is what he says. The one, <coughs> the, one, <coughs> me, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And for this reason, I think Paul is, is, is felt free to permit the Corinthians to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, he says, what else does he say? There's one true God, the creator of all things and the giver of life. And so, yes, there are many gods, so-called. Mind you, there are many gods in our context too, isn't there? There are many gods in Australia. We might not see them made with, you know, wood and, and uh, clay and so forth, or stone, but there are many gods, things that we as Australians get very passionate about. We can make gods of all sorts of things. We can make gods of sport, we can make gods of entertainment, we can make gods of movie stars, we can make gods of all sorts of people, we can make gods of our career, we can make gods of our business and a lot of Australians make gods of themselves because we lavishly um, uh, and selfishly pour a lot into ourselves and put ourselves up as the centre of the universe, don't we? I mean collectively. It, gods are alive idols are alive in this world today and we can dismiss it around we can dismiss people who bow down to you know i've been to india where you know you can see literally see gods and goddesses that are made with human hands and you you think how can they do this they'd probably look at australia and say how can you be so so idolize this person or this activity that's alive and well in australia but for christians paul is saying and i'm sure the elite in this group, the mature, mature Christians would say, yes, of course, there's this one God. How does he describe this one God? 
Interestingly, he said there is one God, there's, there's no God but one, um, and he goes on to say, there's one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And this was probably a, an early catechism, this statement about the Father and about the Lord Jesus. And what he's doing, I think, is he's emphasising the, the singularity of the true God, but he's also emphasising two of the three persons within that Godhead. And what does he do? When, he, when you look at how he describes the Father and the Son, uh, there is ascribed similar qualities to both. All, have, all things have their origin in them and we live in and through them. But there is also diversity because the way in which the Father is described in relation to those functions and qualities is different. You see this? There is one God, the Father, from whom all things came. You describe the Lord Jesus, it's through whom all things, through whom all things came. In relation to the Father, it's for whom we live. In relation to the Son, it's through whom we live. But there is one God. And the reality is there are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So that's the knowledge that Paul says. And then in verse 8, he says that, let me just read it. Uh, he says, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and we are no better if we do. Therefore, food doesn't have anything to do, in a sense, with our standing before God. It doesn't bring us closer to God, or it doesn't drive us further away, in and of itself. Okay? Um, so, this is the point that Paul's making here. Our conduct as Christians cannot be assessed based just on knowledge, but our conduct must be assessed on the basis of our love for one another our love for our brothers and sisters. What does he say in verse um, 1? He says, Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. He's asserting that the superiority of love over knowledge. You see, knowledge in and of itself can just puff us up and make us proud and make us think that we are something. But without love, it's nothing. It is nothing. It's not that knowledge is not a good thing of, an, of itself. Knowledge is a good thing. We ought to be students of the word. We ought to have a thirst for it. But if we do not have a heart of love, if we do not balance our knowledge with our love, then we have nothing. We just have arrogance. And so Paul wants to put a real premium on love, not on knowledge. And so he reminds them that the one who loves God is known by God. What does he mean by that? Well, Paul uses this expression elsewhere in uh, Galatians 4, um, verse 9, and it's, it's used in relation to uh, meaning redemption, meaning a person is redeemed, is, is saved, is converted. And Paul meant that um, unlike the proud people who centre their religious lives on knowledge, those who focus on demonstrating love, on love for others, demonstrate that they have been redeemed. It's the expression that they have a genuine faith, that they have truly been saved. And remember that our Lord, before he went to the cross, what did he say to his disciples in that upper room? Did he place a lot of emphasis on knowing and knowledge? He placed the preeminent emphasis on love. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. 
as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And he used a word, agape, in the Greek, which is a word that was not used widely in secular writings, but is used very um, predominantly in Christian literature in the, in the scriptures. It's a word that is not just some abstract Greek virtue. It's a word that is defined by God, God's sending action, God sending his son to be the saviour of the world, his willingness to send the very best, his willingness to send his own son to take the place of our place so that we might be brought into a relationship with the living God. It's a love that reaches out to others. It's a love that puts others first. It's a love that forgives. It's a love that starts over with people again. It's a, it's a love that sacrifices. It's a spontaneous love. It's, a, it's a re- the redeeming love is the essence of God's love. And that's the love that Jesus was talking about. And if you go over a few chapters in Corinthians, you come to a very um, important chapter. I think Gordon's going to bring it to us. Is that right? chapter 13 and uh, it's the love chapter now it's Paul speaking about the preeminence of love in the context of worship and 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 spiritual exercise of spiritual abilities and gifts in the church in worship but it is uh, reminds us again that Paul reminds us there that without love we're nothing and he's essentially saying that there's a mathematical equation there you can, you can put all your like on one side, but minus love equals zero. And three times, I think, in those early verses, he says, without love, love, I'm nothing. I have nothing and I gain nothing. Without love, it's zero. You can be as smart and beautiful and as gifted as you like. You can be as famous as you want to be, but without love, it's zero. You can be incredibly gifted spiritually, Corinth was a very gifted church spiritually, but one thing they missed, one thing, the most important thing, they weren't exercising love for one another. And this is what Paul is saying. Our conduct as Christians is not just on the basis of our knowledge, but on our love expressed for one another. So what's the second principle I think that Paul is bringing out here? He's saying, what is permissible behaviour for one person may be sinful for another? Uh, so this is what he says in verses 7 and 8, 1 Corinthians 7 and 8. But not everyone knows this, this knowledge about these idols are nothing, these gods are nothing, uh, that there's one true God. Not everybody is, is, is appreciating this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God we're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. And I think the first principle here is this. If someone believes it's wrong, then for that person it is wrong. Um, for some people, they had this lingering sense that if they were to engage in eating food that they knew was uh, offered to idols, that it was really something. And their conscience would be, um, would be uh, you know, alive and well and saying, you shouldn't be doing this. They couldn't help it. Instinctively, they knew that it was wrong for them. And so thus, if they ate their, with their weak consciences, they were, they were, in a sense, defiled. They felt this sense of violation of their, their sense of loyalty and their devotion to Christ. 
Paul talks about this in Romans 14 as well. So if you want to get a sort of a parallel in some of the things that he's saying here, go to chapter 14 of Romans. This is what he says in verse 14. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. That's interesting, isn't it, even for our day? But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. So I think that's the message that Paul is bringing, one of them anyway, is that if a person believes that to be wrong for them, then it is wrong. And the second thing is this, everyone must uphold his or her own conscience in faith. And again, go back to Romans 14, this is what Paul says. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. There you go, vegans started way back then. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honour the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord. You see, this is no, it's not a point of judging one another in this, this, this issue. It's about whether the conscience, we can uphold the conscience in faith. Those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. In other words, everyone must uphold their conscience in faith, believing that they want to honour the Lord. So there it is. What's permissible behaviour for one person may be sinful for another. Okay, so you would like Paul to sort of just list out do's and don'ts, you know? We like that, don't we? It sort of makes it easy, doesn't it? Paul's not doing that. He's giving us principles, making us think it through, making us to experience it, making us go back to really the heart of the issue. Okay, the third principle is this. No Christian has the right... Now, now we're going to talk about those who might think they're more mature Christians, who might not have a conscience... So we've talked about those that do have a conscience. We're going to talk about those who may not have a conscience about a particular issue, a particular activity. It's not forbidden in the word of God. It's one of those grey areas, okay? How should we react? How should we respond if you um, have immature in your faith and you don't have a particular problem? How should we respond? Well, this is what Paul says. I think this is a principle. No Christian has the right to practice anything that damages the faith of another Uh, and here's the point Christians should not become a stumbling block to other Christians because Paul says to do so is to sin against the weaker brother the person who has a sensitive conscience if we are to engage in that and when perhaps okay so we invite someone over to our homes and we know that there's a sensitivity then we ought not to maybe drink for instance Okay, that would be the situation, okay? Uh, because it, to do so is to sin against your weaker brother. This is what he says in verses 9 to 13 of chapter 8. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge, it's okay, you know, idols are nothing, God is just one God, uh, you have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. So Paul, is, is, uh, having said that the strong Christians were right to understand that food doesn't commend us to God, goes on to say um, that they should still not regard themselves as totally free to do this, to eat this meat that's offered. Why not? Well, he gives that hypothetical situation which we covered in another context as well. 
it would encourage them to do something that's clearly for them would be wrong, clearly for them would be against their conscience. And so the mature Christian, the one who has no conscience, has this knowledge, should say, because I love you, I will not do this. I will not do this. Because to do so is to sin against this brother or this sister for whom Christ died. And that's the next point. This is even more important. To do so would be to sin against your saviour. You know, it's one thing to sin against our brothers and sisters. But Paul is saying, if you do that, you are sinning against your Lord. You're sinning against Christ. I may feel free to, in conscience to do a particular thing, but if my doing this causes a Christian, another Christian, who is conscientiously opposed to that same thing, to stumble, I have sinned. I have sinned against them and I have sinned against Christ. Paul says no. Christians should become a stepping stone for other believers. This is what he says in verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. Wow, that's going a long way, isn't it? <laughs> Some of us have trouble with that. So that I will not cause him to fail. So the question for a Christian, and you're thinking about something now, might be different for every, different people, is you're thinking it's not simply whether you can defend a particular course of action that you are doing. It's not that you can do it intellectually without a conscience. It's not that you can do it, engage in it without guilt, because you know the scriptures, because you know that it's not a black and white situation. Um, obviously, in the case of alcohol, alcohol obviously, scripture is very clear about having too much alcohol, I should add that. Um, but in that particular instance, knowledge is important, liberty is important, we have a freedom in Christ, but what is the governing principle? The governing principle is the other person, not me. I can argue that I have the liberty, I don't have the conscience, I have the knowledge that this is okay, but Paul is saying, no, that is not the preeminent uh, fundamental principle. It is about love for my fellow Christians. That's much more valuable. Why? Because Christ so values my brothers and sisters in Christ that he died for them. He died for them. Again, we come back to the cross, back to the cross. And so therefore, as his follower, I cannot treat lightly what he has paid so dear a price for, for you, my brothers and sisters. Paul says something similar in Romans 14 again. Um, again, read that chapter. It really helps to understand this chapter. Romans 14, 19 to 21, Paul says, So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. We're not to be stumbling blocks to other Christians, but we're to be stepping stones. We're to... We're to build people up, not tear them down. It's so easy to tear people down, isn't it? You can tear something down. You know, you can watch these big buildings, you know, and in a few seconds they crumble, don't they? And they've taken years to build. Same with relationships. Same with a person's, you know, a person's discipleship journey. So easy to just say something that, that tears someone down. We're to be encouragers. Where to build them up, where to think about the other person in everything I do. Think about them, think about Christ, the vertical and the horizontal. 
And that principle should govern everything that we do. Love for God, love for others, particularly my brothers and sisters in Christ. So let us examine our lives and search out the things that we do, the things that we say that might cause our brothers and sisters in Christ to be hindered in their spiritual progress and their maturity. Let us do everything we can to ensure that our brothers and sisters are built up in Christ and we're building up, not tearing down. That we become not stumbling stones but stepping stones on their journey of faith. Because like Paul, I think our aim is this. He could say in Colossians 1.28 that his aim was to present everybody complete or mature, perfect in Christ. And that should be our desire, each one of us. So let's be encouraged and let's be challenged also from the words that Paul says in this great chapter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to come together and to worship and to know that we're here by your grace and your goodness not because we're deserving in any way, but because our Lord Jesus Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice, came to this earth, lived like we do, yet apart from sin, and died the death that was necessary in order for us to be brought into a right relationship with yourself. We couldn't have done this on our own, only through our Lord Jesus. So help us, Father, as we've contemplated this chapter, to think about the principles that Paul enunciated so many years ago, and yet still have relevance for our age 2,000 years later. Help us to put them into practice this week. Help us to think about a brother and sister in Christ that we may be able to just help. Help us to refrain from things that we might otherwise do, but that might cause others to stumble. Lord, we need wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your help. We need the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So we ask for this. We pray for this as we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.